New series this morning. So over these six weeks, starting today, we are going to zoom out and look at the big picture of the Bible. I don't know if you noticed, but the Bible is a pretty thick book. Lots of words, lots of stories. And it's pretty easy to get the, um, to get the chronology mixed up, to uh, get some of the stories confused. And it's a challenge to see how it all fits together. And that confusion was captured in a Bible quiz given to a group of first through third graders. And I want to share with you some of the answers. Here they are. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. Noah's wife, I don't know if you know this, was called Joan of Ark. And Noah built the ark, and the animals came to it in pairs. They were, some of them were really big pairs. And I like this one, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. The Egyptians got drowned in the desert. Afterwards, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. The seventh command, I don't know if you knew this or not, seventh command is thou shalt not admit adultery. Carter, Elliot, all you guys, please correct that immediately, all right, with the students. Um, Solomon was David's wise son, and he had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> Jesus taught us the golden rule, which says to do unto others before they do unto you. And Jesus called the 12 apostles, including Matthew. Matthew was a taxi man. And then finally, the Bible teaches that a man should have only one wife, and this is called monotony. <laughs> so you can see why there's a need for some basic Bible teaching to get the story straight. So when it comes to reading and understanding the Bible, we need to zoom out before we zoom in. And we zoom out to see the big picture before we zoom into the chapters and the verses and the words. And we understand that each, each word is within its own verse. That's how we understand. Each, we understand each word within its own verse. Each verse within its chapter. Each chapter within its book. And each book within the larger story of the Bible. So one good way to zoom out and understand how the story of the Bible fits together is to divide it into six acts. So these are those six. There's creation, how it, how it all got started. And then there's the fall, how it all went wrong. Then a chosen people, how God chose a specific group of people to help save the rest. Jesus, how God sent his own son to save the world. The church, how this new group of people are God's hands and feet in a broken world. And then finally, new creation, how God makes everything right again. So this is what we're going to talk about over these six weeks. You know, I, I really love a good story. I love reading good books, especially books that surprise me. Uh, I finished a good one recently, uh, a thriller, and I always try to anticipate what's happening. Uh, who did it? How? Why? And I thought I had this one all figured out. Pretty proud of myself. Until the closing pages. And I missed it, totally. 
I had the, the who, the why, the, the how. I had it all wrong because I was, I was looking in the wrong places. Now, the same can be true of the Bible. Unless we know who the story is all about, we'll miss it. We'll get lost. The Bible is God's story. God is the main character. Who the story is about is so important. It's actually much more important than the how or the what. This is God's story. And we start at the beginning, Genesis 1. Now, there's three things that we're going to discover about God in Genesis 1. Number one, God is strong, more powerful than anything. Number two, God is good, better than you can imagine. And number three, God is here, closer than you can think. I want to give credit to uh, a few teachers and authors who helped me prepare for this morning. Greg Boyle, John Walton, Tim Keller, John Ortberg. Um, I'm not that smart. They influenced much of, of what I'm sharing. Now remember, each word must be understood within its own verse, its own chapter, its own book, and each book within the larger story of the Bible. But it's also true that it must be understood within its context, its time, its place, its culture. And to understand Genesis 1, we must understand the context. In the ancient world, there was this conversation that was going on about creation. How did, how did everything get here? People have always wondered that. And they wondered about it in this ancient Mesopotamia, which is where little Israel was. Uh, Egyptians, Sumerians, Babylonians, they all had stories about creation. And these stories involved limited, imperfect gods. You know, they, they all believed in the supernatural, um, but not in one god. Instead, they followed a bunch of flawed gods who would fight with each other, and they would fight these strange mythical beings that I'm going to call chaos monsters. And out of this struggle between chaos and order, creation was born. Now, people back then faced chaos every day, much more so than we do today. Drought, starvation, sickness, and they wanted to know how chaos was defeated so that people could survive. And back then, uh, people would deify all kinds of stuff. The sun would be given a name and it would be, be worshipped. The moon and the stars were worshipped. You know, even in our day, do you know of anybody who believes that the stars can influence our lives? Ever read a horoscope? I think, I think the courier still carries a daily horoscope. So people must be reading that stuff. You know, that, that kind of stuff goes way, way back. In ancient stories, creation grew out of, out of the struggle between the gods and, and the chaos monsters. And people in those stories were just flunkies for the gods. The gods were hungry and they were lazy and people were supposed to give them food and, and give them gifts. And in return, the gods would, would make it rain, they would make the crops grow, they would give them children, they would uh, make sick people well. And these rituals developed, these weird, often, 
oftentimes violent fertility rites and, and cultic prostitution, all to please the gods and, and to win their favor. Genesis 1 was written to this culture. It challenged their assumptions about, about the nature of God and human beings. You see, Genesis 1 was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And that's an important principle in understanding the Bible. It was written for us, but not written to us. So it helps to know the context, what was going on back then. So here's the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that sentence would change the world. Anybody back then would have noticed. There's no, there's no chaos monsters. There's no other gods. There's no struggle. There's just one God. He's great. He speaks. And what he wants to happen, happens. God is strong. Strong enough to create everything. Strong enough to control everything. And that strength is demonstrated in this little Hebrew word, bara. Say that with me. Bara. Now you know Hebrew. And that means to create. And it's used about 50 times in the Old Testament. And the cool thing about this word is it's only used to describe, to describe God. No human being ever did this in the Bible. It's a little different from our word to create. Uh, we think of artists creating, but the Hebrews would never talk about a human bara. And I think the reason has to do with, with who's really in control. The reason people back then were so concerned about chaos is, um, is because of this little thing called, called fear. Do you, ever, do you ever feel afraid when, uh, when things seem out of control? Do you ever feel that way? There's a good reason for that. You know why? Because things are out of control. They are. At least out of your control. Now, to make sure you remember this, I want, to, you, I want all of you to take out your, your index finger. Take out your index finger. I want you to turn to the person next to you. I want you to wiggle it at them, and I want you to say to them, you are not in control. Okay, go ahead. All right, that's enough. That's enough. I, I, you don't have to explain to them why. <laughs> you can't control your life. You can't. Not through your brains, not through your wallet, not through your job, not through uh, worrying about stuff. And if you wait, if you wait until you've got everything under control to be happy, how long are you going to wait? Until you're dead. In the beginning, God controlled, God created. God is, God is 
unimaginably powerful. And I'm not, and neither are you. I'm not in control of anything. But I can surrender to God, and I can live confidently under his strength. You know, Genesis 1 is is so fascinating. It begins with this word, God, bara. And this word isn't used again until like the 21st verse. It says, God created, God, bara, the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. Now, why? Why is bara here? Well, the writer wants to be clear. God made the greatest forces on earth, even those, even those mysterious sea creatures. Nothing in this world can threaten God. Those great sea monsters are his pets. That's how strong God is. God made the sea monsters. He made Orca, the killer whale. God made your boss, your roommate, your mother-in-law. Why? Why? And why shouldn't we be afraid? Why shouldn't we be afraid? Because because the Bible says God is strong and he is in control. So that's where Genesis 1 starts. God, Barah, he is strong. Nothing stands in his way. But not, that's not all that's true about God. God is strong, but God is also, is also good. In these ancient stories, people are created as, a, as an afterthought to serve the needs of the gods. Except for this story in Genesis. This God... This God has no needs. He creates the earth, not for himself, but to make space for us. And when you read through Genesis 1, you can see God's goodness. Verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Two more Hebrew words for you. Tohu and bohu. Say those two words with me. Tohu and and bohu. Now, look at you've tripled your understanding of Hebrew already. You know, I thought about naming our kids Tohu and Bohu, um, but I got voted down. Uh, these words are, are, are hard to translate. A shapeless mass or a, a, a shapeless void, but it's really not talking about the shape of stuff. What it's saying is that, is that nothing worked yet. Darkness hovered over the earth, and then God comes. And he creates order so that people can have a wonderful home. On day one, God said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. There was day and there was night. There were seasons, what we need to live. Day two, God separated the sky from the sea. And really, this is all about weather. God makes it rain so that there can be life on, on the earth. Day three, there's, there's dry land and there's vegetation, seed-bearing plants. The food, tra- food chain is created. And then the next three days are con- connected to the first three. Day one, God creates light. Day four, he makes specific lights, sun, moon, stars. And again, this is all important because it's, it's written to that generation. And it says, God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. Now, what would the greater light be? Huh? Sun. Sun. Good. Thank you. The sun. Now, why doesn't it just say, the sun? 
Well, for a good reason. The sun doesn't show up until day four because back then, everybody thought the sun was God. And they worshiped the sun. But Genesis says, no, it's not a God. It's not meant to be worshiped. God created the sun. And it doesn't even mention the sun's name to make a point. Don't worship the sun or the moon or the stars. Don't worship creation. Worship the creator. And, and that seems kind of odd to us, I know, because, uh, I mean, who's tempted to worship the sun or the moon? But do we ever worship anything that isn't God? Sure we do. The story in our day might be that on the fourth day, God created money or success or cars, boats, and homes. So it goes on. Day two is, is the weather and the sky and the sea. And on day five, God fills them up with birds and with fish. Day three, food grows on the dry land. Day six, he fills land up with animals and with people. And the picture of God is this, this joyful, generous inventor, this, this creator, this designer, this, this engineer, bringing order to the chaos, order to his universe, because that God is good. And over and over, God speaks, and it happens. And God says, this is good, which is another way of saying it works. God triumphs over chaos. And then we come almost to the best moment of creation. And again, these, these words changed the world. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea, the birds of the sky, and livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now this was a new story. You are made in the image of God. In other ancient stories, the king might be made in the image of one of the gods, but not other people, the poor, the ordinary, not them. But in this story, every human being bears the image of God, is blessed by God, and is made to rule with God over the earth. And now the best part. Now, the creation of, of human beings, that's big, but it's not the high point. And I never used to understand this. Does anybody remember what God did on the seventh day? What did he do? He rested. And why did he rest? It seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? We know that God doesn't get tired. He's all-powerful. But again, remember the context. Ancient people would have immediately understood what the seventh day was all about. But we can miss this. It can be a challenge for us. So let me explain. In the first place, Genesis 1 is not a modern 21st century scientific timetable of the universe. Again, remember, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. 
It was written to people in their context, just like we have our own culture and context. Genesis was written to them. And if we don't start there, we're going to miss this. Uh, Wheaton College professor John Walton, he wrote about this. And he noted that the ancient people, of course, didn't know a lot of the stuff that we know today. They don't know. They didn't know that the, that the stars were suns or, or that the earth was round and it moved about in space. And God didn't write Genesis to correct science, which didn't exist like it does today. And that's a good thing. Because you've probably noticed that science keeps changing. As we learn more, we're always correcting old misconceptions. Eggs and dark chocolate are bad for you. Well, wait, wait, scratch that, now they're good. You know, we're learning new stuff all the time. Uh, there are many things that scientists believed years ago that are, are no longer true. Just ask the planet Pluto. Thank you. That was uh, <laughs> so many people... So many people have had their faith damaged. Uh, so many bright young people go off to college and they think that the Bible's credibility is damaged and are led to believe that it's in conflict with science because, because they're taught the wrong interpretation of Genesis. And worse, they lose the actual message of Genesis. Now I know because I was one of those young people long time ago when I was a college biology and chemistry major. You see, the days of creation in Genesis, they aren't about how and what. They're about who. God made the day and the night, the sun and the moon and the stars, the spring, the summer, the winter, the fall. God made the seas and the lakes and the, and the rivers and the clouds and the wind and the rain. He made the forests and the mountains, and the, and the deserts, and the plains. He made plants to grow, and birds to fly, and fish to swim, and, and animals to, to creep, and crawl, and walk, and run. And, and God made people to enjoy it all with him. God, barah. God did all that. And the writer of Genesis uses those six days to lead us to the seventh. And there's something really great happening here. And it could change how you see the world. God is strong. God is good. And God is also here. Genesis 1. There's all these connections that, that made so much sense back then. Uh, and they're easy for us to miss. Connections between the earth and creation and the temple. Now, the temple for Israel was a place where God lived. We often think of the church as a, as a place where people gather, kind of like what we do now. But back then, that wasn't, that wasn't true. Temples mattered because that was where the gods lived. And for Israel, the main reason for the temple was that God was here on earth now. Over and over, there's this, this beautiful connection. The temple's architecture, every decoration, every utensil and resource used by the priests reminded the Hebrews of the creation story and of the creator God. 
his power and, and his goodness and, and that he was here present with them. In Genesis 2, it says, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it or, or to serve and keep or protect it. It's like if you see, um, if you see a car out on the highway and, um, and it has the words to serve and protect on it, who's driving that car? Who? Right. Law enforcement, police. And when you do see that car, what do you do? You slow down because you're driving too fast. <laughs> to serve and protect. Those are the same words used here. Those are the same words then that are also used to describe what the priests do as they serve in the temple. In other words, it isn't just saying that God created the heavens and the earth. It's also saying that the world, the world was made by God to be his temple, to be his, his dwelling place. And you were made in his image to be his priests, to rule with him over this world. You see, day seven is the best day. On day seven, guess what God did? On the seventh day, God rests on his throne. On the seventh day, God rules from his temple. You see, back then, when there was a crisis or there was a battle, the king would go off, and then when it was over, the king would come back, and then he would rest on his throne. Now, that didn't mean that he was taking the day off. What that meant is that now the king's real work would begin to care for people, to do justice, to spread peace, to build prosperity, to encourage learning. Now all of those things could happen because the king was resting on his throne. Genesis says that, that those other stories were wrong. Chaos isn't a threat, not to this God, a God who's in control. He pushed back chaos. He's strong and he's also good. He makes a wonderful world and it works. And on day seven, God rests. God sits on his throne and he says, this, this is my world. And men and women made in my image are here to work with me and to love with me and, and to live with me and to rest with me. The seventh day, it's the best day. On the seventh day, God made this earth his home. He sat down on his throne. On the seventh day, up there came, down here, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That's day seven. So our calling is to make our world, our church, our hearts, a place where God lives. But there's a problem. Chaos made a comeback. And Ed's going to teach about that, about the fall in chapter 3. His sin came into the world. And the reason why there's pain and death and suffering and violence isn't because of some, some superstitious force out there. The chaos is in here, in the human heart. There's another time that the word bara is used in the Bible 
King David, he, he messed up his life. He violated God's will, adultery and murder, and, and he prayed, prayed, create bra in me, a pure heart, O God. See, only God can do that. Chaos made a comeback. And the fallenness of this world, its brokenness, isn't because of something out there. The old story's got it wrong. It's something in here. Genesis got it right. And now we face the chaos monsters. Regret, abuse, betrayal, loneliness, divorce, guilt, and sin. But the king would come again this time in a manger. And sin, which began at the foot of one tree in the garden, would be be defeated at a terrible price on another tree, on a hill, on a cross. But death wouldn't defeat this king. And Jesus is reigning right now. So let's make our hearts his home. What Jesus began then, he's still doing today. So let's make our hearts his home. Let's make our lives his temple. This week, every moment when we go to sleep, when we wake up, when we work, when we rest, when we see another person made in God's image, when we're alone, when we see the beauty of this world, when we see the foolishness of our own sin, let's pray. Oh God, create bara in me. A clean heart. And he'll do it. Because Jesus has risen. God is strong. God is good. And God is here. It's the seventh day. Let's pray. God, I'm so, so grateful for your word, for the Bible, for, for scripture and what it has to teach us about you. And we can get easily lost, um, easily confused and think that it's, uh, it's about getting the who's and the what, I mean, getting the what's and the why's and all that, the how's, all that kind of stuff straight and in the right order. But it's a story about, about you. It's about who? It's about you, Jesus. It's about you, God. So help us as we, as we look at your word, as we read scripture, engage with your, your Bible, help us look for you. As we experience your creation around us, let's look for you. And as we interact with people, every single one of whom has been created in your image, let's look for you, God. And may we see your strength. May we see your goodness. And God, may we experience your presence with us. God, now accept our worship. Amen.